When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could from what was rattling around inside my head and the Christian tradition. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I try to answer the questions of the day. And the question that we're talking about today is episode three of a series that we're working on called Death of His Godly Ones, A Double Murder in the Heart of Purity Culture. Today we're going to be retracing the final days of Lindsay and Jason before their murder. Uh, There's some really good articles written. Some of them are written um, quite early in the uh, investigation. One of the lead journalists, Demian Bulwa, has written extensively about this case. He covered this case for the San Francisco Gate newspaper. And all these articles are articles I've pulled from online. So I I hope that I'm not... um, confusing anyone by my sources, but from an article that was written in 2004, uh, Damien traces their last known uh, locations and events in their life. And some of this is controversial. There's, again, as I said yet last time in the last episode, we're not quite sure uh, what really happened, but there's all sorts of sightings. Whenever there's a murder, there's always a lot of people that, um, that feel like they want they are part of it whether subconsciously or consciously they are they saw them they were right there we do this unconsciously if there's a murder at a walmart and we were there three weeks ago the first thing we think of is i was there three weeks ago we like to center ourselves in the story and so undoubtedly there are people centering themselves in this story uh, as far as their last couple days of life went but we'll sort through some of that as best we can as we go through uh, the, the, um, the timeline of events right before their death. Again, Jason and Lindsay were working at a Christian camp called Rock and Water. It's an adventure camp, um, a camp that um, so many young people go to. And uh, Lindsay especially was known for speaking to uh, teenage girls that were in her uh, cabin or in her, um, somehow in her sphere of influence into the very wee hours of the morning when she had to get up and get the boats ready. Um, many people wrote to Lindsay's parents after her murder about that and how much she had an effect on their life and how influential she was in giving them a listening ear, even though she was extremely exhausted. Um, we re- retraced their steps Friday the 13th, which was August 13th, Friday the 13th, 2004, Jason and Lindsay finished their duties at the Rock and Water Camp in Coloma. Coloma, California is, uh, I think I can locate that. If you can just picture California, San Francisco is in Northern California. You can picture, um, you can picture San Francisco and then Jenner, the place of their murder, is north of San Francisco. So they drove down to San Francisco from the camp uh, on Friday. They were in Jason's Ford Tempo, Red Ford Tempo, saying they were off to visit friends. 
this is the part of the story that um, always sticks in my mind because as far as any police investigators could determine, there were no friends they were going to visit. They were going to spend some time alone. I worked at camps after college and during seminary and in high school, and they're very intense places. They're places where you're bombarded with questions from children, from the teens that you're supervising, and it's an exhausting place, especially if you're in a romantic relationship with somebody. There's people like sort of on you all the time and watching you all the time, especially when you see your beloved. And Jason and Lindsay are, are an engaged couple. They've been engaged together for a number of years. They're, they're really close and you can see why they wanted to get away. So it seems to me that there were no friends. They were going to spend some time alone. And that is a wonderful thing. I think about the need they had as they approached their upcoming wedding to spend a little time just them, because that's what marriage is. Most of marriage is just you and another person, and they were wise to think about that. But that's Friday the 13th. They depart somewhere around 7 p.m. Um, the next sighting we have of them, or known place, is in San Francisco. Uh, where they spent Friday night, nobody knows. Uh, they arrive in San Francisco. They're there at Pier 47, which is that fish market, the gourmet market at Cannery. And a couple of uh, the photos that they have there have them taking a picture in front of the Golden Gate Bridge and Alcatraz. They used uh, Lindsay's credit card there to buy some an assortment of Tabasco sauce, which was somewhat of a practical joke from what I've read uh, for folks that... Um, so for someone that was back home or some, I'm not sure exactly who the Tabasco sauce, but it was a gift that they bought for someone almost as a joke. Uh, as many of you know, Tabasco sauce comes from Avery Island, Louisiana, which is an Episcopal family. Um, and there's an Episcopal chapel at Avery Island in Louisiana. So it's probably the most Episcopalian of all the hot sauces out there. That was um, not necessary for the story, but I thought I'd throw it in there. San Francisco is a tourist city. It's a place to go with beautiful views, amazing buildings, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, all these, um, and Alcatraz, of course, but it's situated in a beautiful spot. And you can imagine how beautiful it was on that August day when they were there on that Saturday with tourists and families and people just enjoying the beautiful weather of Northern California, San Francisco um, in August. Um, According to this timeline that um, has been that was that was written right after uh, the murder in August, uh, we have them next sighted at a gas station, uh, a gas station known as River Gas along Highway 116 in Guerneville. Uh, if you drive north from San Francisco, you're going to hit Guerneville pretty far up on the coast. You passed. Uh, you pass Mar Marin County, Bodega, and then Jenner and Guerneville are, are pretty close together. And on the uh, on that Saturday, so they drove from San Francisco after spending a lot of the day there, and the couple buys gas at River Gas along the highway. And it is known that Jenner Inn, they, they drive over to Jenner after Guerneville. The front desk manager said the couple appeared either Friday or Saturday night. When told there was no vacancy, the couple left to camp. Uh, why 
Friday or Saturday, hard to know. Um, this is where the discrepancies abound as far as, um, as far as what happened, uh, that day. So this, this, um, desk manager said they inquired, it seems to me if they bought, they were in Guernsville on at 1 PM on that Saturday, then they were, um, going to stop there in Jenner where they eventually died that same day. So the Friday seems to be the more compelling day that they talked to that front desk uh, man, person at the Jenner Inn. I don't know if it was a man or a woman, the front desk manager um, said that they appeared and they told them there was no vacancy and the couple left to camp. I've read other places that, um, that they were told that there was a, a safer beach to go to called where they eventually died. Um, I've read that a few places. On Sunday the 15th, uh, Jason and Lindsay ate breakfast at the Jenner Inn. They went back and told someone that they were going to go to a new campsite. So it seems like they um, they didn't camp on the beach that they died at on Saturday night. Um, but they were saying they wanted to go to a new campsite. Whether they did or not, it's hard to know. Um, later on that sat Sunday or Saturday, these dates are disputed. Uh, they were spotted by the owner of the Northern Lights, a surf shop in Bodega, which is a nearby town along the coast there, um, where they could, and, and they were told where they could camp from free, camp for free. The couple were due back at their Sierra camp jobs by 5 p.m. on Sunday. So this is where uh, the, the narrative kind of breaks down. It's hard to know uh, if this sighting at the Northern Lights, a surf shop on Sunday afternoon or Saturday, it's hard to know. Again, these accounts um, by these people that were interviewed weren't sure what day it was. Uh, this is the place where Jason is said to have a goatee. We're quite sure he did not have a goatee in the um, at this time. And the man that stopped in at the surf shop uh, was said to have a goatee. There's also a comment that he was kind of rude and dismissive, and many uh, folks that know Jason would question that being the same person as Jason. So I tend to kind of throw out the sighting at the bodega uh, shop, the surf shop, and as as just a, one of those ways that people manufacture a connection to a historic event or a big sensational event and a tragic event in this case. So, um, again, another sighting. So that was the only sighting on the Sunday or Saturday, hard to say, but we know that they ate breakfast at the Jenner Inn where they had asked for a room or a cabin to stay in on the morning of Sunday morning, Monday evening between 8.30 and 9.30 PM. The couple is said to have entered into River's End, which is another sort of resort, cabin resort there on the coast in Jenner. And they asked if any cabins were available. The River's End owner, Bert Rangel, could not accurately identify Alan. So again, another couple shows up and asks for a cabin. They're told there's none available. Whether this was Jason or Lindsay, it's hard to say. This is Monday, the 16th of August. Um, on Tuesday, an employee that's interviewed at the Jenner Inn, again, the Jenner Inn is, is where they did eat breakfast on the Sunday morning. Jenner Inn is where they asked if they had a, any room, 
so everything is everything that is the most um, solid or at least the most reliable testimony in this case is centered in Jenner, where the beach is where they died. So it didn't seem to me like they went very far. That's why the Northern Lights surf shop sighting is um, somewhat um, hard to fathom. But the, the real trouble is that they were due back to their job on Sunday night at 5 p.m. Um, and this this is where uh, I just can't believe that, that they would have waited, um, that they would have blown that off or, or ignored that. Um, they were going to go back there. They were very dedicated to their work there. Uh, and I think anyone that knows them or knew them would say that they weren't people that were just going to disappear. Um, so all these sightings after Sunday, to me, are extremely unlikely. Um, so a couple definitely showed up quite late at night on Monday evening. Uh, and Bert Rangel, who can't identify Jason by sight, in any pictures or anything, said that there someone asked for cabins. I think this was just someone that asked for a cabin to stay in. Tuesday night, an employee at the Jenner Inn, at, it's called the Mystic Isle Cafe, allegedly saw the couple outside the cafe when it was closed. Now, this is the sighting where on Tuesday, uh, the cafe is closed and allegedly Jason goes and bangs on the window or the door and says, hey, we're hungry out here. And they say, sorry, we're closed because they are already closed. Now, this is the one where people that know Jason uh, dispute this. The family disputes this and says, no, that doesn't sound like Jason. He's not the kind of person that would bang on the window. Plus, this is a couple who lived off or Jason lived off of like $2,000 a year, $5,000 a year. He saved like $2,000 a year. Um, Jason's finances are constantly brought up in anyone that knows him, how frugal he was. The thought of them um, blowing off their, their time to come back to the camp in Sierra, California. The thought of them staying an extra two days and constantly asking for a room that's available and then banging on the window of a restaurant to me seems very unlikely. It's definitely um, believable that they um, all the events leading up to Sunday definitely happened um, in my mind. And yet this idea that somehow they um, keep reappearing on Monday and Tuesday is to me just really unbelievable. Um, Wednesday morning, um, a sheriff's helicopter is flying along the beach trying to arrive at the place where a teenager has been stranded on the cliff, on the bluffs there in Jenner, California. And while they're circling the helicopter, they see these two sleeping bags there on the beach. And, and this must have been during daylight hours. They're, it's daylight, might be in, into the afternoon or, or late morning. And they send someone over there and discover the bodies of the couple. And Jason and Lindsay are there laying there with a bullet wound to the head in each of them. And this is where they're discovered. And that's why the, the day and time of death is is greatly disputed. But it seems to me the most likely and simplest explanation is that they died on Saturday night or on Sunday night, rather. Um, and it may even be that they died on Saturday night because of the um, they're getting back to the camp at 5 p.m. There is a possibility that the camp um, had extended 
their leave time to Monday. No one's ever said that to me or I've never read it anywhere. But it seems really hard for me to believe that that they would have just ignored that um, that time to be back. Uh, and that's where, um, again, these all these details are disputed after the credit card and the pictures. We definitely have pictures of them in San Francisco on Saturday, and we definitely have a credit card use very close to Jenner um, there on Saturday night. After that, everything is sight what people remember seeing them. Um, but it seems that the Jenner Inn sightings are probably um, legitimate on Sunday at least, but probably not after that, especially the one where they're banging on the door. Um, this, um, one of the things that was said shortly after the murders were announced, I want to highlight uh, one of the things that Dan Anderson, the president of Appalachian Bible College, said in a public statement to the West Virginia paper in which their deaths were announced. We are confident that the Lord has directed what is a set of very unfortunate circumstances, the president of Appalachian Bible College in Bradley, West Virginia, said on that Friday when they found out. We are confident they are with the Lord and have the assurance of eternal life. Uh, in this statement, um, in the statement, we see a lot of theological claims being made. And the culture of ABC, Appalachian Bible College, was um, one where the sovereignty of God was emphasized. The Bible church movement, the Bible college movement, came out of really late 19th century Presbyterianism that was centered in Princeton University and then Westminster Seminary, Biblical Seminary, Covenant Seminary, Reformed Theological um, seminary and other seminaries that emphasize the Calvinist tradition where the sovereignty of God plays a very large role. So when every, anything happens that's tragic, everyone must acknowledge that this is somehow God's plan. And they do this in very public ways. I've been to so many funerals in this tradition where so much of the sermon is taken up by how this was God's plan which I have found always to be a very terrible way to help people grieve. There needs to be emotions in grief. And when we shut down emotions by just saying, well, it was God's plan, God was okay, taking these people off the earth. Um, in fact, what we are saying is that God somehow is okay with someone going up to them and putting a bullet in each of their heads while they slept. And I cannot imagine that being the case. Now, of course, theology is always about nuance, and in a more nuanced way, we can say that God has a plan for everything, and that even the terrible things in life that happen, even the tragic things, even the really horrible things, somehow fit into God's plan. And certainly that is what is meant when we say that this was God's plan, but it always comes off really terrible. We are confident the Lord has directed what is a set of very unfortunate circumstances. What, a, in my mind, a terrible theological statement to make. The Lord directed these unfortunate circumstances. Unfortunate being uh, fortune, luck, or even God. Somehow that God is directing these terrible experiences, something that is deeply entrenched in the theology 
that is taught at Appalachian Bible College, a theology that was taught to me and what uh, took me years to kind of unwind and undo as I experienced the Iraq War and other really terrible setbacks in my life and saying, is this what God wants for me? Is this God's doing? And thankfully, I found other expressions, theological expressions of how God works in the universe and the world that were gave me the ability to escape that trap that somehow God was in this. <coughs> and so I wanted to highlight that part of Appalachian Bible College response. Um, Dr. Anderson, the president of ABC, uh, said some more things that um, the Sonoma County Sheriff had said. They were presumably shot in their sleep. There was no disturbance at the campsite. And the sheriff right away that first week said, it appears to be a terrible crime absent of motive, which concerns us. Their bodies were found fully clothed side by side in sleeping bags near their belongings, which included a Christian book, I believe it was a Bible, wedding literature, camping gear, and backpacks. That was from the AP press. Um, Dr. Anderson in that moment said he wasn't surprised given their interests. Uh, they were staff workers and at the different camps. But he said he was a guy who loved the outdoors and adventure activities. He was a person I would describe as a quiet, gentle spirit. And that's a beautiful statement to say about Jason, for sure. Um, they offered prayers for the, for the loved ones of the victims in that time. Again, the theology of Appalachian Bible College and the whole Bible College movement and fundamentalist churches uh, doesn't pray for the dead. They don't pray for dead people because they feel like they're already kind of sealed. Remember, he says they have the assurance of eternal life. So we don't have to pray for Jason and Lindsay. The only people we have to pray for is their families. And growing up in this kind of theology and having experienced it so much in my life, I found this to be so empty. Uh, and so when I found a church that did pray for the dead, the Episcopal Church and others do this, I found it to be so reassuring that I could pray for those who had died, that my connection with them was not severed by death. But I could pray for them, pray that they would um, find healing in God's presence and peace and everlasting life in a, in a more full and human way than I could even imagine. And so, again, the way we grieve is so wedded to our theological understandings. And this murder, these murders of Jason and Lindsay bring out the, the flaws and the cracks in the theology that was taught at Appalachian Bible College, of which I am thankful I'm no longer a part of. And that concludes episode three of Death of His Godly Ones, A Double Murder in the Heart of Purity Culture. Next week, we're going to look at the murderer who is has been convicted in a court of law that was the murderer, but he was identified quite early as a major suspect in the case, but then the trail went cold and other other uh, men were identified, Sean Gallen. So we'll look at his life, why he was so quickly identified as the murderer or a suspect in the murder, and then why he was eventually dropped by the police only to resurface as the murderer, murderer 15 years later. Um, so we'll look at that next time we drop an episode. But thank you for supporting this podcast by listening and sharing with your friends. Again, if you knew Jason or Lindsay or know something about this case, I'd love to talk to you and have you on the show and share what you know, either um, in person or just with your 
uh, statements written. Thank you again. And this is dedicated to Jason and Lindsay and their memory and the love that they had for their campers, for each other, and for all of us in this world.